John 14, page 752, is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. So when I was in college, I had this group of guy friends. You know, we were just like a little wolf pack. We met each other the first day, freshman year, all living on the same floor uh, of the same dorm. And for the next four years, we did everything together. I mean, we lived in the same building. We would go to the same classes. We would eat dinner together. Um, uh, John Shoulders, who is a part of this church family here, I remember he was the dean of our um, student body at the time, my freshman year. And that little group of friends, we got to meet John. John goes to Ethos here. We got to meet John because that group of friends had pulled a prank, and the police found out about the prank, and the police brought us back to campus because of the prank. And just these, these moments, just kind of these experiences that this little group of guys that we had together just did life, and we loved life. And so for four years, we're kind of inseparable. And then there's this moment, you know, we graduate. And if you haven't graduated college yet, you'll, you'll experience this. Your friendships just change. And some of those friendships got stronger. We stayed closer. And some of them got a little weaker as people began to move off and to get married and to get jobs and to do all sorts of things that you do after college. And I was thinking about this a few months ago. We were at a wedding because every now and then that group of friends would kind of reconvene, you know, once or twice a year at a wedding or a birthday party or some big event. And that group of friends, although a few of us have stayed close, most of us kind of find ourselves sitting there at these big events once or twice a year, recalling what life used to be like when we did life together. And I thought it's weird to be a part of a friend group whose primary purpose is to preserve a fading memory of what life used to be like then. And so we, we get together and it's like, hey, how's it going? And then we start replaying the same old stories and we laugh and we think about it and then we go on our way and it's as if that little group of friends just exists to preserve the fading memory of what used to be. And I, I was thinking about that this week because I was going, this is the brand of Christianity that most of us have subscribed to. Most of us have subscribed to a brand of Christianity as though our primary purpose is to be a group of people who gathers around the fading memory of what life used to be like when God was still here. And so we come together and we open up this book and it's like, wow, look at what God did. And look at what, wow, look at what Jesus, look at what this was like. And it's almost as if the job of Christians is to preserve this fading memory of what life used to be like when God was really here. And I go, that's the dumbest craziest thing we could ever do, and yet it's what I've done most of my life. The people of God have never been about the preservation of a fading memory of what it was like when God was here. The people of God have always been defined by the very real and living reality that we are not a people gathered around a memory of a God who was, that we are a people being shaped by a God who is. And that God is with us, that he was moving with us, that he is forging us, that he is taking us somewhere, and that there is more on the table to be had. I remember a few weeks uh, before Sydney and I got married, one of my friends that had been married for 20 years, he was giving me advice, and he's saying, Dave, there's all these things that you need to know about marriage, you know, you're going to have to learn how to communicate and how to spend your money, and you're going to have to learn how to raise your kids. But he says, marriage at its most simple form is boiled down to this, you and Sydney have to learn to do all of your life completely together. That's marriage. It's learning how to do all of life completely together, whether 
things are good or things are bad, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you have kids or not, whether you're sick or healthy, marriage is learning how to do all of your life right here and now with her. It's not about you preserving this fleeting romance of college. He says it's about you moving into the future together, doing something together. And this is at the the heart of what it means to be the people of God. It's not sitting in seats on Sundays going, let's remember what he was like. It's it's us being seized by this reality that God still is, that he's still moving. You see this amongst the people of Israel. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, there's this group of people that were enslaved in Egypt, and God sends Moses to free them. And this was a historical moment where God freed the Israelites, but it was also a spiritual metaphor for our lives. And God frees the Israelite people from Egypt. Maybe you remember this story. And for the next 40 years, the Israelites were experiencing day in and day out what it was like to have a life that was under the leadership and the dominion of God. So the Israelites would wake up in the morning and they'd say, what are we going to do for breakfast? There would be manna, bread on the desert floor. Do you remember that story? And when they were thirsty, where are we going to get water in the desert? And they'd come to God and he'd give them water. They'd wake up in the morning, God, what do you have for us? And they'd follow the, the, the cloud of glory or the pillar of fire. And there are all of these details and there are all of these stories, but here's what we need to know about the people of Israel, is they were a people who were learning how to live all of their life in the presence of all of God. They were not about the preservation of a fading memory of what God used to be like in the Garden of Eden. They were learning how to dynamically follow the Lord day in and day out. This is what you see in the life of the disciples, Jesus' earliest followers. Do you remember this? Just living ordinary lives, just like you and I. Jesus shows up in the midst of an ordinary life, and Jesus does what Jesus does best. He ruins the ordinary. He says, come on, there's more to this. There's, there's more for you than this. Get out of the boat, leave the nets, come, come follow me. And these disciples, for three years, get to experience day in and day out what it's like to do life with a living God. Can you imagine how beautiful it would be if tomorrow morning you didn't have to wake up and have quiet time? I don't know why we labeled it quiet time. Worst idea ever. Sounds boring and stale and dry. What if you woke up in the morning and it's like, hey, Jesus, what are we going to do today? This was the life that the disciples had. Hey, Jesus, what's on the docket today? Well, around 11, there's going to be 5,000 hungry people gathered on a mountainside, and all we have is some fish and bread, but, man, we're going to do something cool. We're going to feed them. Then we're going to get in a boat, and I'm going to be exhausted. I'm going to fall asleep in the boat, and a hurricane's going to come, and you guys are going to freak out, but I'm going to stop the storm with my mere words. It's going to be amazing. And then we're going to land in a cemetery, and there's going to be a man who's going to be demon-possessed, but I'm going to cast out the demons, and then it'll probably be time for bed. Can you imagine this? This is what John talks about in 1 John 2. He says, we have beheld the glory of God. We have seen him. We have touched him. We have heard from him. He was among us. We have done life with God. Can you imagine what it would be like to do every moment of every day with all of God? This is what the disciples had. This book is not a book about supernatural people doing supernatural things. This book is about a supernatural God leading ordinary people into supernatural things. And I love this 
moment where the disciples realized that to be a follower of God was not to gather together around a fading memory of what life was like when God was there, but it was to walk with God right here and right now. And my question for us, Ethos, is do you want that? I go, I do. I do. There is more on the table. There's more on the table for us. And this is what you see unfolding in John chapter 13. It's the backdrop for this conversation about the Holy Spirit. The disciples are at the end of three years of walking with Jesus dynamically, knowing him relationally, seeing him, touching him, hearing him. And they're here in John chapter 13. You can go ahead and open your Bibles there if you want, page 751. John chapter 13, it's the end of their three years with Jesus, and they're there in the Passover meal, which was the biggest religious festival of the year for the Israelite people. They would gather and they think about what God had done amongst the people of Egypt, uh, amongst the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And they're taking the Passover meal. They're thinking about what God has done. They're eating the Passover with Jesus, who is the Son of God, in Jerusalem, which was the Mecca of spirituality. This would be like you eating Christmas dinner with Santa in the North Pole. I mean, just the <laughs> The, the most wonderful like moment, like joyous. You can't get any better than what's happening in John chapter 13. And it's going to be in this moment of exceeding joy that Jesus is going to say the thing that they never thought they would hear. And it's John chapter 13, verse 33, in the midst of the meal. Flip there with me real quick. I want you to see this. These guys have been walking with Jesus intimately. This is what Jesus says to them. John chapter 13, verse 33. He says, my dear friends, or some of your Bibles say my children... I will only be with you a little bit longer. And it's the moment the air went out of the room. It's the moment their hearts were sickened. He says, I'll only be with you a little bit longer. You'll look for me, and just as I've told the Jewish people, so I will tell you now, the place that I'm going to, you cannot come with me right now. You've got to understand this. These men had left everything for Jesus. They had left careers, they had left status, they had left their families, they had left their security, they had left their reputations, they had left everything from Je for Jesus. And in the moment of deepest joy here at the Passover, all they can hear Jesus saying to them is that he's getting ready to leave them. And the feeling of fear and brokenness and abandonment begins to sink in. I was thinking about this moment uh, right before Sydney and I got married, I had a dear friend. He and I have been best friends since we were little kids, and he got married a few years before me. His first marriage ended when his wife walked out on him, got remarried uh, before Sydney and I were even married. And I remember it was a week before we were getting married, he shows up at my house. He had driven a few hours to come see me. And I remember opening the door and seeing him standing there, and the look on his face said it all. He said, Dave, she's leaving. And I remember sitting there with my friend in the depths of his sorrow as the second woman in his life has just left as well. And this, this feeling just of, I'm going to be alone again. I've left everything for her. I'm going to be alone again. And I've got to be honest with you. When I read John 13, if you're anything like me, that statement, I'll be with you for a little while, a little longer, does nothing to you. This is not weird. It doesn't make your heart sick. You're not worried because if you're anything like me, most of us have subscribed to a watered-down version of Christianity. A lot of us have bought into a form of Christianity in which the presence of Jesus, not only is it not needed, it's not expected. 
And so we're like, what's the big deal? Why are you guys so upset? We, we spent all of our life walking without the presence of Jesus. We, we spent all of our life being a Christian without the, the presence of Jesus here. And here's what you've got to hear. The disciples had no context for watered-down Christianity. They had no context for a type of Christianity that could take place apart from the presence of a living God. And so they're saying, what do you mean you're leaving us? You know, Peter and the disciples would have never said, okay, you're leaving, we'll build a building, we'll tell some stories, we'll make sure our kids tell the stories right or they're out. We'll, Jesus, we will protect this memory. <laughs> we'll hold on to it. They're like, what? You can't be leaving. And it's only when you understand the sorrow that you can embrace the joy of what Jesus is going to say in the next few chapters. These men are devastated, and it's in their devastation that Jesus says, let's get it from the table at Passover. They're going to walk towards the Gethsemane. It's a 45-minute walk. And John chapter 14 through 16 is the conversation that takes place as they're walking to the very garden in which Jesus will be betrayed. And Jesus is essentially saying, I've got 45 minutes left with you. This is the most important thing for you to hear. And I go, don't you think we should listen? And it's in the midst of their sorrow that he's going to start talking about the joy of the Holy Spirit. And I love this. Flip over to John chapter 16 with me. It's page 752. John 14 through 16 is one big conversation, and we're going to unpack it over the next few weeks together. But I want, I want to start in John chapter 16, verse 7. I want us to, to see this promise that's going to anchor the framework by which we see everything that Jesus is going to say in these three chapters. And I love this in John chapter 16, verse 7. This is the promise that Jesus makes to the disciples. He says, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate or the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. This is the words of Jesus in the midst of their sorrow. He says, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your good. It is for your benefit that I go away so that the Holy Spirit will come. And this is the heart of the promise. Jesus is saying, listen, things are going to be very different, but they will be better. And I think, we have to, I think we have one question as a church family that we have to really wrestle with as we talk about the Holy Spirit. You have to decide, is Jesus Christ a liar? If Jesus Christ is a liar, we can just disregard everything he's getting ready to promise. But if he's telling you the truth, there's something more. I'll just go ahead and play my cards. I think he's telling us the truth. I love this moment. He says, it's to your benefit. He says that I go to heaven so that the Spirit of God can indwell you. And I need you to hang with me for a moment because this will be very confusing if you don't hear me clearly. Jesus knew that for the disciples, it was to their benefit that Jesus the outward Christ. And what I mean by outward, he had been living among them in an outward fashion. They could see him, they could touch him, they could hear him. They could see him. They spent three years with him. Jesus knew that it was to their benefit that the outward Christ would ascend so that the spirit of Christ could live within. Jesus knew that it was to their benefit that the outward Christ would ascend so that the spirit of Christ could dwell within. He knew that for them, 
in regards to their mission and their holiness and everything that would happen, it would actually benefit them for the Spirit of God to come. Now, I'm just being honest with you. I've read this passage for years, and I go, there's no way that's true. I won't make you raise your hand, but if you had to choose between seeing Jesus in person or having his Holy Spirit, I know what all of the truth tellers in here would say. Oh, man, I want to see him. I wonder if he really had long hair and an awesome beard. Like, does he really wear a blue sash? I mean, I, I, I want to see him. I want to touch him. I want to hear. And Jesus says, no, it's to your benefit. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Because when you watch the way that the life of the apostles unfolded after Jesus left, the words of Jesus were true. Isn't it amazing that Jesus was with the disciples for three years in the flesh? The outward Christ was among the disciples. And the teachings and the presence of the outward Christ was not enough to get the disciples to quit sinning. The teaching and the presence of the outward Christ was not enough to keep the disciples from doubting. The teaching and the presence of the outward Christ was not enough to make the disciples effective on mission. And yet in Acts chapter 1, the outward Christ ascends. Acts chapter 2, the inward Christ, Holy Spirit, descends into the people. And all of a sudden, the kingdom of God explodes. Isn't it amazing that the mission of Jesus became more fruitful the moment Jesus left? Why? Because the Holy Spirit came. And because the words of Jesus are true. And then if, that, if the disciples needed more than an outward Christ and an outward teaching, is it possible that you and I need more than an outward Christ and an outward teaching, but we need an indwelling spirit? And Jesus says, it is for your benefit. He says, it's for your good. Things are going to get better. And the disciples were not going to get less of Jesus, but for the first time in their life, they were going to get all of God. And just like the Israelites and the disciples, you and I get invited into this story. So flip back over John chapter 14 with me. It's in the framework of this sorrow. Oh, you're leaving us. It's in the framework of this promise. No, things are getting better. That Jesus is going to start this conversation with the disciples. We're going to start in John chapter 14, verse 12. And I don't know if you write in your Bibles or if you take notes. I would encourage you, underline every promise you notice Jesus making. If you're using one of our Bibles, don't you write in that Bible. No, I'm kidding. You can, you can write in the Bible. Who cares? Um, that's our gift to you. I want you to notice every promise that Jesus is going to make to the disciples about the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 12. He says, I'm telling you the truth. Once again, is Jesus a truth teller? He says, I'm telling you the truth. Anyone who has faith, he doesn't say anyone who has great faith or big faith or supernatural faith. He says, anyone that has faith in me will do what I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than I've been doing because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the life of Jesus the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you, and he will be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth, and the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you will know him, for he lives with you, listen to this, and he will be inside of you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, and before long the world will not see him anymore. But you will see me because I live, and you also will be fully alive." 
On that day, he's talking about Pentecost, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and will show myself to them. Verse 22, then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, don't you know it just sucked to have that name? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh man, mom, why'd you name me Judas? It's a, it's a freebie for you. Verse 22, back to the verse. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us, not to the world? But Jesus replied, anyone who loves me, anyone who loves me, listen to that, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching and my Father will love them and we will come to them and we will make our home with them and anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the heavenly Father who has sent me. All of this I have spoken while I'm still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will remind you of everything that I've said to you. My peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is the word of God out of John chapter 14. These are the words of Jesus, the promise about the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus had 45 minutes left with his disciples on the road to Gethsemane, he said, here's what I want you to know. I'm sending you help. He says, I'm sending you someone. And in the course of those 15 verses that we just read, Jesus makes 11 promises. It's an amazing, he makes 11 promises in the course of 15 verses. For the sake of our conversation together as a family this morning, I want us to see those promises in two big categories. There are promises of God's presence and promises of participation in God's kingdom. There are promises of his presence and there are promises of participation in the kingdom of God. Now, this is big. This is where we started at, at the very beginning today. It is this understanding that to be the people of God means that we are a people who are walking in the dynamic presence of God, that we are not merely holding on and reviving a fading memory of what life used to be like when God was here. It's us understanding that God is still here, God is still moving, that God is still at work. You know, as Christians, every Christmas we gather around Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And at Christmas, it's that celebration that God came in the form of a baby and he dwelled among us. Every Easter, we celebrate the reality that that baby grew up and he lived a sinless life and he died on a cross and he raised from the dead. And if Christmas is the celebration that God is with us, Easter is the celebration that God is for us. And he's done something about the sin problem. But what Jesus is talking about here is not just the celebration that God is with us. And it's not just the celebration that God is for us. It's the declaration that unfolded in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It was the celebration that God is now within us. And there's this phenomenal truth that I really struggle to get my brain around. <laughs> Jesus looks at these disciples and he says, here's the promise. Look back at verse 15 and 16 and 17 with me. He says, if you love me and you obey me, I will ask the Father, and he will send you another counselor or an advocate or an expert. Your Bibles probably translate that differently. He is the spirit of truth, and he will live in you forever. That's the promise. 
that the Spirit of God resides in the people of God forever because of the work of Jesus Christ. That those of you who are Christians right now within your body is the very presence of God, most mind-blowing reality that I could ever even speak about. He says, yet this is yours. And this is so important. It's important as we think about this because if our only job is to gather as a group of people and think about the fading memories of what life used to be like when God was here, we don't need God's help. But if you want to live on mission with Jesus, if you want to defeat sin in your life, if you want to see people come to know the Lord, we need the presence of God. I love this. Jump back to verse 15 with me. I love this. In verse 15, he says, he says, and I will, or verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate or helper or comforter or counselor or expert, look at this, to help you and to be with you forever. I love this promise. Jesus says, I will give you a comforter because when you live your life for me, your life will be uncomfortable. The reality is most Christians in America don't need any more of the Holy Spirit because your life and my life is all about our comfort. But if we really want to live for the comfort and the glory of God, you need the help of God. And Jesus says, I will send you a helper. He says, I'll send you another advocate just like me. The same spirit that was within me will be within you and he will lead you and he will guide you. And if you know the story of the disciples, Jesus keeps his word. The beautiful thing about Christianity to me is it's not just a group of people trying really hard to do things for God. Christianity is about the reality that we are a group of people who are on the receiving end of something great that God has done for us. And because God has done something great for us, man, he chooses to use us in ways that we never could have been used. It's this beautiful, beautiful reality. It's the reason Jesus could pray in Matthew chapter 6. The disciples are like, teach us to pray. And what's Jesus say? He says, our Father in heaven. That's a weird phrase for us in English. What he was saying literally, our Father in the heavens. And the word he uses, he says, our Father who is all around us, who is within us, who is above us, who is below us. He says, our Father who is all around us, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Jesus is saying, this is the way that you pray as followers of Christ, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You talk to your father who is near, who has not left you as orphans, as though he is actually near. And you live your life in holy expectation that God would use you to bring great hallowedness to his name as you live your life. There's this incredible promise that Jesus begins to make to these guys. And so often as Christians, we stop short. We go, man, salvation is so great. Salvation is about us saying, man, we've got a place in heaven. Pentecost is about heaven saying it has its place in you. Because the Holy Spirit of God is here. We are not a group of people gathered around a fading memory of what life was like when God was here. We are a family on mission with a God who is closer than he's ever been. And Jesus says, do not be scared. He says, don't be scared. I'm not leaving you. You're not getting less of God. You're getting all of God when the Spirit descends. 
And so you look at these promises, and over and over and over in those 15 verses, he keeps telling them, he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be in you. We're going to make our home among you. He just keeps saying it over and over. He says, God will be with you. But it's not just a promise of presence. Jesus makes a promise of participation. Jump back to chapter 14, verse 12 with me. Verse 12, he makes this unbelievable promise of participation. He says, I'm telling you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me. This is such a a huge statement here that Jesus makes. He says, anybody has faith in me. He doesn't say you have to have super faith or amazing faith. It's not the quality of the disciples' faith. It's not even the quantity of the disciples' faith. It's the object of the disciples' faith. Do you remember the story when the Israelites were getting ready to cross the Red Sea and they're there? You need to go back and read that story in Exodus chapter 14. What was the quality of their faith like as God did that miracle? Very, very, very low quality faith. They're all like dogging God. They're like, let's go back to Egypt. I think he's abandoned us. I mean, that's like low level JV faith right there. (laughs) Terrified. And yet God used them. God did something amazing in their midst. So often we even take this conversation and we, we totally miss it. We think it's, oh, okay, to have more of the Holy Spirit, I've got to have the best faith. <laughs> got to have the most faith. And he says, no, it's the object of your faith. So when you have faith in me, verse 12, he says, this is huge. You will do what I've been doing and you will do even greater things than what I have done because of the Father. Now, I won't make you raise your hand, but there is nobody in this room that legitimately believes that. Maybe we believe it in our heads somewhere, but to believe it in our lives is completely different. Jesus says, it's not just that you'll be a people of my presence, but you'll be a people who are walking in greater participation in the kingdom. He says, you're going to do more amazing things for the glory of God than I ever have. And this carries with it a promise of both mission and the miraculous. So he tells his disciples, he says, listen, you're going to see people come to God in ways that you never would have imagined because the Holy Spirit will be living within you. And this is true. The disciples, this is a crazy thought to me. The disciples brought more people to Jesus than Jesus brought to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is a truth teller. And when the Holy Spirit descended on those 12 men, something changed. But it wasn't just with the mission of Jesus. It's that these men begin to live in the miraculous outpouring of what God was doing in the world. So all of a sudden, the disciples started living these crazy lives for the glory of God. Do you realize in the book of Acts, the disciples healed people in ways that Jesus never healed people? And so Peter is walking through the marketplace, and his shadow is healing the sick. Jesus' shadow never healed the sick. They'd, say, they'd cast out demons. They'd do things that, in ways that Jesus had never done them. Why? Because Jesus was a truth teller. And Jesus said, it's for your benefit that the Spirit of God would descend into your life. And you will live a life both in regards to mission and the miraculous that exceeds the things that you've seen me do. And I just want to go, do any of us actually believe that? I'm not being hard on you. I'm just going, do any of us believe that? I go, no. I want to believe it. And I pray to believe it. Do I actually believe it? Oh, God, help my unbelief. Think about this. Did you see this all throughout the scriptures? Is that God is a God not only of presence, but participation. And so, in the Garden of Eden, what made it so beautiful? 
was not just that the presence of God was there, it's that God wanted Adam and Eve to participate in his sovereign rule. And so he's there with them and he says, hey, I want you to name the animals. And I want you to have dominion over this garden. And he's like, be a part of it. This amazing thing that you see in God's character. It's what you see in the story of Moses. They get to the Red Sea. I've talked about that story a few times today. And their backs are up against the metaphorical wall. And they go, how are we going to get through this? And God didn't need Moses' help to part the Red Sea. Can we just all nod our heads that God did not need Moses' help? But God says, hey, Moses, you want to be a part of this? Paraphrase. He says, hey, buddy, lift up that little stick. I mean, can you imagine how ridiculous this is? He's like lifting up a stick and the water's parting. That's God. It's not Moses. That's God. Or the disciples, they're there feeding the 5,000. Did God need their help to multiply the fish and the bread? No. But he knew it would be more fun if the miracle would pass through their hands and that it would give them a sense of who he is. Same thing with my children. They always want to help me around the house. They're so, they can't help me. They're not useful. <laughs> but it's more fun when they participate. And I wonder where God is waiting for his miraculous to pass through your hands. Does God need you to heal your sick mother? No, he doesn't. Man, God loves to use ordinary people as conduits of heavenly power. For their sake and yours. And I think there's this decision that we have to make as followers of Jesus. We look at statements like this in verse 12 and over in John 16 where he says it's better for you. And I think you've got a, a big like heart level thing that you've got to wrestle with this week. Is will you as a follower of Jesus, will you water down the promises of Jesus so that your ordinary life makes sense? Or will you ask Jesus to take your ordinary life and make it all of a sudden make sense in light of his promises. See, a lot of us, we look at these audacious claims of Jesus and we go, that doesn't make any sense. I've never seen that in my life. And so we go, let's just water down the promise. Let's just, maybe he didn't really mean that. Maybe he wasn't telling the truth. Maybe he's saying, that, let's just water it down. Let's just get it smaller. Let's just get it smaller. And all of a sudden we say, Jesus, your promises are subject to my experiences. But I go, do you think maybe God's inviting our experiences to be subject to his promises? There's more. There's more. There's more. And Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. I've got 45 minutes left with you guys. I'm telling you the truth. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And this is for your good. There are all these promises that Jesus makes, and we'll end here. But in the midst of these 11 promises that he makes in those 15 verses, Jesus gives three commands. I think this is important because over and over and over in the scriptures, God would make a promise and a command. So in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 8, he says, here's the land that I've promised you. Now you go take possession of it. Here's the promise. Here's the land. Now you go take possession of it. And over and over and over, it's like two pedals on a bicycle. God says, I'm going to start this, but you come with me. You, you do something with me. Here's the promise. Here's the command. And in light of all this, Jesus says, here's the promise. My presence is going to be with you. You're going to participate with me. And he says, but here's how you unwrap the gift that I'm giving you. I was talking to a good friend of mine this week, and he made a statement that just really hit me. One of the biggest industries in the United States is the gift card industry. Every year, $41 billion are spent by Americans on gift cards. 
And retailers love selling gift cards because they know that 70% of all gift cards are never redeemed. In fact, the average American household has $300 of unused gift cards laying around. If you're one of those households, bring them our way. We'll use them if you're too lazy. They love selling them because they know that they're not redeemed, that most people have a gift sitting in their home that's been unopened. I'm convinced that for Christians in America, most of us are sitting on a gift that has been unopened. And Jesus says, here is the spirit that I'm promising you. There is more. And he says, here's the way you unopen the gift. And he gives us three words, and we're not going to spend much time on them at all. You need to get in the word this week. You need to really wrestle before the Lord about what this means for you. In verse 12, he says, anyone that has faith in me. The Holy Spirit is not about your work, your effort, your knowledge, your morality. The Holy Spirit is about you submitting the entirety of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's about you understanding that only because of Jesus do we receive the unbelievable gift of his indwelling spirit. He says it's through faith, verse 12. Jump down to verse 15 with me. And he says, and through love and obedience. He says, he says you come to me in faith. Verse 12, he says, in verse 15, he says, you love me. He says, if you keep your heart wide open to me, and if you do whatever it is that I'm telling you to do, look at the next part of that passage. He says, then I will ask my Father, and then he will send his what? Spirit. He says, if you love me, keep your heart open to me. Do whatever it is that I say. I will ask the Father, and he will send. That's the promise. That's the command. And this week, I was just thinking about this, and honestly, I was just a little depressed. I'm like, man, God, I hate. You've given me this tremendous gift that I, I, I don't want to open. And I think I just realized that the depths of my own disbelief were just so exposed. And I think some of us, as we study the Word this week, and as you think about this, you're going to realize how deep your unbelief actually goes. And it's the reason a lot of you are more comfortable preserving a fading memory of what life was like when God was here than actually following him right here now. And so here's what I just did. I'll just tell you this week. I'm like, oh, God, I don't know that I believe this. I really want to believe this. I really want to love you. I really want to obey you. I don't love you and obey you and have faith in you like I want to. This is me. Like, this is what God was really doing in my heart this week. I kept thinking of that story of the man that came before Jesus. He had the sick son. Do you remember this? And he says, Jesus, can you heal my son? And Jesus said, I can. Do you believe that I can? And that man's response was epic. He looked at Jesus and he said, I do believe. Um, actually, will you help my unbelief, Jesus? <laughs> He's like, I believe that you can do this, but man, I don't actually believe it. And Jesus knows this. And I, I want you to walk in the freedom of this reality. If you don't have faith, and if you don't have love, and if you don't have obedience like you want, ask God for more. Be honest with God. All week I'm just like, okay, God, I don't, I don't have it. I want more, okay? However you do that, I, I just want more. I'll, I'll receive it. In verse 21, it's true, this is where we're in. Look back at verse 21. And I will love them, and I will show myself to them. I will love them, and I will show myself to them. What kind of Christianity do you want? You want to give your life preserving a fading memory of a God who was? 
Or do you want to breathe and walk and live in the reality that there is a God who is? The Holy Spirit is God's gift. People that want to do life with God. My peace I have, my peace I give. Don't be scared. That's what he says in verse 27. Where we talked about last week, Romans 15, may the God of all hope fill you with peace and joy so that your heart would overflow with the hope of God as you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The thing I've been praying for us is that as God exposes some of our areas of disbelief, that we wouldn't be tempted to water down the promises of Jesus to fit the ordinary reality of our lives. So I just want to invite you. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes right now. We're going to take communion here in a second. But I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and to just pray this silently with me. I'm going to give you a few things to pray. Maybe this will help you if you don't know where to begin. A few things to pray. Father, I want to believe Jesus. Father, give me more faith in Jesus. Father, give me more love for Jesus. Father, help me walk in obedience to Jesus. I'm going to invite you to repeat this out loud with me. Father, help us believe Jesus. Say it again like we really want it. Father, help us believe Jesus. Father, give us faith in Jesus. Father, help us to love Jesus. Father, help us to obey Jesus. Christ, I love you. I thank you that you're a truth teller. God, by faith, would you open our eyes to the presence of God within this room. God, help us to see you, to know you, to love you, to walk with you so that your name would be glorified among us. Father, we want more of your spirit so that we can know you better, so that the world around us could see you more clearly for no other reason. God, help us to walk in that truth. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray and give thanks, and together we say, amen.